You're listening to Plenary Session. All right, you're in for a real treat. In this week's bonus episode, you're going to hear a lecture I gave on medical reversal to the hospital's group at Kaiser Permanente. Now, I've already posted a version of this lecture on this podcast before, so for those of you who've listened to that version, um, there's not going to be a whole lot new here. But I've decided I'm going to try something new. I'm going to try posting the same lecture given to different audiences so interested listeners can see that there are some slight alterations and the talk changes a little bit here or there. Unfortunately, there was 10 minutes of this talk in the middle that were completely novel, discussing a paper that we have in Revise and Resubmit, and we have deleted that, unfortunately, because I did not want to release that just yet. But I will put that back in in a future episode. So... Enjoy bonus episode, Medical Reversal. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us. Patreon.com forward slash plenary session. Backers on Patreon will get access to all of the slides of this lecture, which will be emailed to you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm uh, one of the OHSU hematology oncology doctors, and uh, I do a bunch of research in health policy broadly. And uh, thanks for having me. I'm going to talk about medical reversal, why 40% of what we do is wrong. And I hope by the end of the talk I persuade you that maybe not the exact number, but the sentiment is correct, that a lot of what we do in biomedicine for many years turns out not to actually improve outcomes for patients. This is the boilerplate disclosure. This is the real disclosure. I'm the author of this book, which is about this topic. It's published by Johns Hopkins University Press. So that's why I'm very rich. <laughs> My work is funded by this nonprofit foundation. And we put out this podcast, which now we shoot for one, about once a week. And we've had a good response to this podcast within the first few months. A lot of people are interested. It's about usually a monologue about oncology and then uh, an interview with somebody in medicine broadly, and that's usually more accessible. So, But the real disclosure of this talk is that some of what I tell you is controversial, and it's not my purpose to disparage specific medical practices, though I will do so in giving the talk. My real purpose is to talk about broad patterns of medical progress biomedical innovation, evidence, how it's increasingly hijacked, and missteps in medicine. Uh, so it's really to talk about a broad theme. But I think in this audience, I w you won't give me too much trouble because it's often the specialists that give me quite a great deal of trouble. So what is medical reversal? I think there are at least two narratives for how progress happens in biomedicine. And there's one narrative that is codified in the textbooks. We spend a great deal of time talking about it, and it's captured by these two pictures. This is a picture of a Model T car on the left, made by Henry Ford, and this is a Model T made by Elon Musk. I think when many of us think of biomedicine, we think of progress in the same way we think of automobile progress, how our cell phones are so much better than they ever were before, um, and how technology is getting better slowly, steadily, incrementally. And I think this narrative is in part true in biomedicine. For instance, how do we treat peptic ulcer disease? In the 70s and 80s, we would perform a very barbaric surgery to remove large portions of the stomach. Finally, in the 80s and 90s, we came up with cimetidine, the first histamine antagonist, and then we moved forward into the proton pump inhibitor class. PPI is better than H2 blockers because they don't have tachyphylaxis. They don't wear off after a while. 
how to treat Hodgkin's lymphoma. If you read the history books in the 1940s, if you were given a diagnosis of Hodgkin's, it was a fatal diagnosis. You'll be dead in two to three years. In the 1950s, Henry Kaplan at Stanford cured some patients with radiation, but they had horrible toxicity and very few were cured. In the 60s, Vincent DeVita at the National Cancer Institute pioneered MOMP and MOP combination chemotherapy. He got cure rates to the 50, 60 percentage points. And then Giovanni Belladonna had ABVD in the late 60s. It's the same treatment we use today, and we have cure rates 80 to 90% for Hodgkin's. So Hodgkin's lymphoma is just like the automobile, like those two Model Ts, slow, steady, incremental progress transforming a disease. And the last example I like to give is how do we treat ST elevation myocardial infarction? Uh, it wasn't that long ago when they did not even know the etiology of ST elevation MI. They prescribed bed rest, which actually probably increased mortality due to DVT. Finally, in the 80s and 90s, we pioneered lytics to reperfuse the coronary artery after we figured out that it was an acute blockage that was causing the problem. Originally streptokinase, urokinase, then tissue plasminogen activator, the Genentech drug that was recombinant, and finally stenting with the placement of a stent. This intervention alone has probably an absolute mortality benefit of 10 percentage points in a 30-day time period. It's probably one of the best things we do in biomedicine, reperfusing coronary arteries during acute blockage, ST elevation MI. So this is the narrative that when you read a textbook, a textbook is going to tell you this narrative, how Bronwell didn't know what caused it, and then we figured all these things out stepwise. But the textbooks are written by the victors, as Churchill says, history is written by the victors. And so they omit the different narrative, the narrative of all the missteps in biomedicine, all the things we tried for years that failed. So we call those medical reversals, things we had been doing for years that were found to be no better or worse than a prior or lesser standard of care, including doing nothing. These weren't things that were replaced by something better, they were things that were reversed and were actually no better than not doing it at all. And there are many examples of this, the Swan-Gans catheter. Uh, if you trained in the 70s and 80s, you placed a lot of Swan-Gans, almost as a matter of routine in shock patients in the ICU. This is a long, flexible catheter that'll tell you the RA pressure, the pulmonary pressure, the wedge pressure, and it ideally would allow you to tailor your therapy for shock. But of course, in randomized trials, even though this catheter gives you a lot of information, it doesn't leverage improved health outcomes in a trial called ESCAPE. So we don't do it as much anymore, if at all, almost never. Hormone therapy for postmenopausal women. Uh, in the 90s, based on observational data, that women who have estrogen fall after menopause have higher rates of cardiovascular events, and basic science data that's adding estrogen supplements will improve all these cardiovascular indices. We prescribed it as a matter of routine for most postmenopausal women in this country. This is a multi-billion dollar a year industry, and it had heavy physician marketing from companies like Wyeth, which um, ended up having to you know, in a bit of hot water over this issue. But this was a mainstay of treatment for a generation of physicians recommending hormone therapy for postmenopausal women. And then in 2001, with the Women's Health Initiative, it was found to increase the rates of cardiovascular events and actually the trial was halted for harm. Uh, this is no longer done as a matter of routine. Now we talk about maybe a short course of hormone therapy for only the most symptomatic patients and even then some people have some worries about it. But I think we've shifted a lot on this topic. And stenting, you know, stenting is a great intervention if you're having a heart attack, but like many interventions, there's a massive potential for indication drift. And now, perhaps the most common use of stents in this country is for chronic stable angina. If you survey patients who are getting a stent place for chronic stable angina, they will say they're doing it to lower the rate of MI and to improve their survival. 
They say that in surveys to this day, even though since 2007 in the COURAGE trial, we know for sure it does neither of those two things. The question is whether stenting for stable angina improves symptoms, which it appeared to do in COURAGE, uh, but which the ORBITA trial weighs in on more recently, so we'll talk about ORBITA. So what is medical reversal? It's a lot more like this automobile. It's a Volkswagen diesel. You bought this car because you cared about greenhouse gases, and in retrospect, you put out 32 times as much gas. Do you have one? Oh, you do? Did you get the money from the Volkswagen? There's someone I know who cares a great deal about reversals, and perhaps this person will be listening to this later, and he had one. It's quite a, quite a screw-up. Uh, but I think medical reversal is, you know, we talk a lot about it, this work that, that I do, but there are a lot of people working in the same space. They just call it different things. No value or low value care. I sometimes think low value is giving people too much concession because some of those things are really no value care. How do we de-adopt failed practices, contradicted or refuted practices? My friend Adam Elshog from Australia made this word frequency cloud and it shows words used in this space and reversal is on the list but by no means are we the most common. So, you know, some perspective that we're not the only people doing this kind of work. Uh, in the time I have, I'll talk to you about some examples of this phenomenon, how often it happens, why it's harmful, where it comes from, what we can do about it, and what are some classic objections I hear. Okay, so I guess everyone in this room knows that getting older, high blood pressure, and atherosclerosis of the afferent renal artery often go hand in hand in hand. Well, atherosclerosis generally. You have high blood pressure, you're old, and you have a lot of atherosclerosis. And some of these patients may have a stricture in the artery that supplies the kidney. Now that's a pretty important place to get a massive burden of plaque because if the kidney is starved of blood, it secretes renin, which is turned to AT1 and AT2, and increases blood pressure. So it is very logical for your el elderly patient with high blood pressure, which has a tight renal artery, that you could stent this open. And if you reperfuse the kidney, renin will fall and blood pressure will get better and you will take people off blood pressure medicines and improve cardiovascular outcomes. We now have at least five large-scale randomized trials testing this hypothesis. These are the two largest, Astral and Coral. What they show is that if you randomize patients to medical management of hypertension versus stenting in medical management for, for this, these kind of patients, there's absolutely no difference in cardiovascular outcomes or renal outcomes. And the reduction in blood pressure medicine is something like 3 pills to 2.2 pills to like 2.4 pills. It's a trivial reduction in blood pressure pills as well. And this is a uh, bias susceptible trial. Patients are not blinded to the placement of the stent. So that can actually, we could talk about it later, but that can actually play some role in how many pills you put such a person on. Uh, because blood pressure is something that always goes up and down and doctors are smart people. And if you take a smart person and you have them get you a value of something that's fluctuating, they will give you values that tell the story you want to tell. And if the story you're telling is we did something that should fix the blood pressure, they're going to tend to give you better values in what they record. They'll hit cycle the cuff until they get the right answer. That's the problem with smart people and some endpoints. Uh, so this is a billion dollar a year industry by CMS from 2001 to 2010. We paid that much money and it really has no benefits over medical management. There are cardiologists who will argue and they'll say these trials excluded the worst patients, those with flash flood pulmonary edema, really bad stenosis, lots of blood pressure pills. But I would say that in 15 or 20 years of doing this, there is not a single positive randomized trial. At some point, if you believe it works in some subgroup of patients, you need to conduct that trial and prove it to the rest of us because we cannot keep conducting trials to show it has no advantage. So is it possible it works in a subgroup? Sure. 
uh, but the burden has to be on the believer at some point. I can't prove Santa Claus doesn't exist anywhere. You gotta show me that he's around. Um, steroid injection for spinal stenosis. It's a classic example. Uh, in 2011, there was an outbreak of fungal meningitis at compounding pharmacies in the Northeast, and a couple people died of aspergillus, and they were undergoing this procedure. They had spinal stenosis, a common cause of back pain, and they were getting epidural steroid injection. Why do we inject steroids here? It's a long-acting anti-inflammatory drug. It should soothe those nerves and improve the pain. And in fact, anecdotally, it does just that. How many of our patients have gotten this and they say, I feel so much better. If I don't get it every three months or six months when, they, when it's scheduled, if I go one month too long, I'm in a lot of pain. So I need this. Well, this is the sham controlled study of steroid injection. It's a randomized trial of lidocaine plus saline or lidocaine plus a glucocorticoid. Lidocaine's half-life is like 12 hours. It's gonna wear off in two days. They measure the endpoints at three weeks and six weeks. Saline has no anti-inflammatory activity. It should do nothing at three weeks or six weeks, but a glucocorticoid does. So what you should expect to see is that these curves split, and at three weeks and six weeks, the glucocorticoid arm, the dotted line, is doing better. But you don't even need to know which direction the axis goes because these lines are superimposable. All the groups are getting better, but they're the group that got the glucocorticoid is not getting any more better. This is a placebo effect intervention. Everyone is benefiting from having a needle stuck in their back, but the group that got the actual drug that you think makes a difference is not doing any better. So steroids for spinal stenosis is probably an expensive, invasive, and at times very harmful placebo. So I think the real takeaway of that fungal meningitis outbreak is not why are the compounding pharmacies so dirty, which was how we responded. And we actually put somebody in prison, the guy who ran that compounding pharmacy, went to federal prison last year. What we didn't do was ask, why are so many people getting steroid injections in the lower back if it's really just an expensive placebo? And is the lidocaine an expensive placebo? You know, you could think of a clever trial to test that hypothesis. So I know at least only one of you read, our, read this book, uh, but in our book we speculated that stenting for chronic stable angina, it didn't increase, it didn't improve MI, didn't improve survival, but people thought it improved symptoms because there was an improvement between stenting and medical management in terms of symptoms that lasted for about 36 months and then it vanished, and it was a small improvement. But we hypothesized that the reason the group that got stented felt better wasn't that the stent was providing a benefit, but that there was a placebo effect to being, having a procedure done, procedure done. And we suspected that if you tested it rigorously with a sham controlled study, it may or may not work. And we wrote that in 2015. In 2017, Rasha Lamy and Daryl Francis performed just that study. This is a 200-person randomized trial of stenting or placebo stenting. They took you to the cath lab, they got the angiogram, you have tight single vessel disease shown here, and they told you they stented you, they made you wear headphones, so you didn't see what they did, and then they didn't stent you. And the primary endpoint of this study is modified Bruce protocol exercise time. So you need to know one thing. Um, there's a study from the early 1990s that tests stenting against pills for this condition. And on modified Bruce protocol, the increase in time was 90 seconds. You got 90 second more exercise time if you got stented. But it's not a blinded study, it's not sham control. If you give a patient renolazine or crank up their beta blocker for angina, you get 40, 45 seconds out of that in many of these trials. If you survey cardiologists and say, what's the minimum exercise time that's clinically meaningful for your patient? because of course they're, they're going from 528 seconds to plus 90 seconds, you know? So what's the minimum that's beneficial? They say it's like 40 seconds, cardiologists say. 
This trial is powered to detect a 30-second difference, so less than what's clinically meaningful. And they were not statistically significant, and they found a 16-second difference, which is beneath what cardiologists think is clinically meaningful. So in the aftermath of this trial, lots of people criticized this group and said, you did not have enough power to detect a significant difference, and that's why it failed. But Daryl Francis's point was, we have more than enough power to detect a difference you thought was clinically meaningful, 40 seconds. In fact, we're powered for 30 seconds. We, this is not considered clinically meaningful. So Daryl Francis, I think, tweeted something like, if you think my trial doesn't have enough power and you cannot explain what you want the power for, the only thing that lacks power is your brain. <laughs> and I think he was right, because people's brains lack power. Um, I think this has been very bad for stenting. This is something that's put in 500,000 patients per year, and a 200-person trial is putting on the ropes. Um, proponents say that you know this is just one trial, you know, but the the problem is they there is this is the only sham-controlled study. I tweeted out a slide that said, "Let me give you a list of all the sham-controlled studies for stenting," and it was a blank slide, you know, because this is the only one. This is the only light in a sea of darkness. Nothing has stopped cardiologists from doing this study 20 years ago. Uh, in fact, nothing stops them from replicating it, except. It's a lot easier to try to poke holes in a negative study than to generate positive data. So how often does this happen? We did this paper a few years ago to estimate it, and we have a follow-up coming very soon. And here's what we found. Uh, we read every original article that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine in a decade, which is 2,000 articles, and they're read in duplicate by two people. And you've heard me make this joke? Okay, uh, and, 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 uh, and that's why God invented medical students, because they were the ones who did read it in duplicate, 2,000 articles, and I'm not going to do that. And uh, they're the only ones who'll do it for no pay, and they'll do it in a quite timely way, actually. They're very good. So that's why, that's why we have medical students. But I, I do say that if you were forced to read these articles for this project, even if we never published that paper, but fortunately they got this nice publication out of it, but even if they never got that paper, it's the best research project you could do because you just read like really good medical science, you know? You read a good articles. That's your, that's your consolation prize. Most times when you go to do research, your consolation prize is like, you know, tendinitis in your thumb from pipetting. So this is better. We found a fa about 1,300 concerned to medical practice. So this is like wearing gown and gloves for contact precautions or stenting stable angina or giving a tenolol for blood pressure, you know, giving a, a certain blood pressure pill. And if you concern a medical practice, first thing, 1,000 tested something novel. Is rivaroxaban better than Coumadin for AFib? Is ibrutinib better than chlorambucil for CLL? Is a magnetic esophageal sphincter better than whatever for our heartburn? And if you test something novel and, you, and you're in the New England Journal of Medicine, I can tell you what you found. 77% of the time you found the novel practice was better. This is publication bias. This is when people say, the New England Journal of Medicine doesn't want your negative study. This is what they mean. They don't want to hear about that anticoagulant or anti-lipid drug that's not going to get to the market and no one's ever going to use 10 years from now because that paper's not going to be cited 10 years from now. No one's going to care about that paper. They want to hear about the practice-changing medicine. That's what they want. So this is publication bias. Or actually, more broadly, selective reporting bias because we don't know how many authors chose not to send it to them. We also found that about a quarter tested something we were already doing, 300 practices. These are the hormone therapy for postmenopausal women, stenting, stable angina. These are already implemented. And if you were already implemented, it was a split. 
38% found the practice beneficial. Yeah, you should have gotten that MMR vaccine. And 40% found the practice no better or worse. No, you didn't need to have tight glycemic control in the ICU. No, the target A1C for a diabetic isn't four, or no, no, isn't 6.8, you know? But, you know, that's what they were pushing for, practically normal glycemia, which is ridiculous. Uh, and they learned it the hard way with the court in advance. This is what is not in the history books. In our book, in the supplement, we detail all these reversals, and we spend six chapters where we kind of tell you these stories. And we did that in part to kind of resurrect some lost history of biomedicine. No one writes the book of Harrison's and tells you these stories, because you have to cut something to get a chapter, and this is easy to cut. It didn't lead to practice change, or it was taken aback a few years later. These are 146 things we did, the brightest people at the best hospitals, with the best preclinical data, that ultimately did not work. They didn't hold, they didn't stand the test of time. And not because they were improved upon, like the car, but because they were no better than doing nothing, like the Volkswagen diesel. These are the Volkswagen diesels of biomedicine. So I urge people to read this list. It's also in the paper, it's a free supplement there, uh, because it will give you some perspective for your own practice. You'll see that, wow, these people believe that this would work, and it was very promising, and this is why, and this is the trial that contradicted it many, many years later. And you start to think, how many of things am I doing in my practice that I believe work based on very promising data, but I don't have that definitive study, and perhaps I should have a little bit more humility in what I do. That's certainly the takeaway message that I've had from doing this work. So we find that there is nothing in biomedicine that is sacrosanct, meds, pills, procedures, devices, screening tests like the PSA, over-the-counter meds, vitamins, supplement, treatment algorithms. So we used to, for everyone who got a stent placed and they got Plavix, we would test their platelet reactivity. If they were reacting too much, we would crank them up to Prasagrel. That entire strategy was tested in a randomized trial and found to be lacking in a trial called Arctic. Diagnostic instruments, systems interventions, quality and performance measures, basically something in every part of biomedicine has been reversed. I think you will concede to me very quickly why this is harmful. People are harmed during the years of practice falls in favor. Uh, they were stented, they told it would improve their symptoms, but no better than a sham procedure. That's not exactly reassuring. It's not exactly informed consent, really. People are harmed in the lag time before it falls out of favor. Doctors are like a battleship. We don't turn on a dime. We turn very, 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 very slowly. And you take a smart person and you let them do something for many years and you have their patients tell them what a good job they're doing and bring them a treat, bring them a gift here or there. They get that reinforcement and then you incentivize them with RVUs and you pay them extra for doing that. And you have them do it for 20 years and then you tell them that's no better than not doing that. They cannot accept that. It's like being addicted to any other substance. It's an addiction. They're addicted to doing it. They have the combo, addict drug, which is a little financial stimulus with feeling good about yourself. That's like the methamphetamine of being a doctor. And once you become addicted to that, you cannot break the habit. And if I show you Orbita, you're a smart person. You'll go through the supplement, and you'll find one person here. You'll find some objection to the trial, and you'll come up with all these reasons why it doesn't apply to what you're doing. But what you won't do is go out there and conduct a positive study to justify what you're doing. So I think. It's very difficult to break these habits. And I won't show you that data for the sake of time, but there's data that suggests that we take a long time, as you'd expect, to turn our practice around. But the real problem, I think, is loss of trust. When we took mammography guidelines from 40 to 50, we said do it for every yearly for 40, now we say 40 to 50, discuss with your doctor, make an individualized choice, and in 50 we go from yearly to bi-yearly. My God, the reaction to this has been so fierce, vociferous, passionate, 
anger. People think, oh, these bureaucrats just want to save money. You know, they're not about maximally saving lives. You know, you don't care about saving lives. Ask one of these people who believe so strongly you should have yearly mammograms from 40. Why not 39 then? Why not 38? Why not prophylactic bilateral mastectomy in everybody? Why is this? Where does this really come from? Reversal happens for one reason. We adopt something based on inadequate or biased studies, and we did so without definitive trials ongoing or forthcoming. We got excited, and we jumped the gun, and we just adopted it. And every player in biomedicine wants you to do this. Everybody's selling a device, a drug, an app, a company, a test, product. They want you to adopt their product based on less evidence. Why? Because that's how you make money. And the more you evidence you ask of me, I'll say, you're going to stifle innovation. You're going to impose an undue burden on me. And I'm going to lobby and get the regulators on the, you know, to run the FDA, the person who's in my pocket, who believes sham control trials are not necessary. And in fact, Dr. Gottlieb is such a person because he wrote an op-ed saying exactly that in the Wall Street Journal many years ago. People who don't understand evidence, who think evidence is a burden, whereas evidence is the only thing that separates the wheat from the chaff. Why do we adopt things based on inadequate studies? Pathophysiology is seductive. We have a medical curriculum where we inculcate people for two years memorizing pathways, and then finally we put them on the wards and let them learn some real medicine. And so we come to believe that the practice of medicine is because of the pathway, but it's the other way around. You practice medicine based on what has empirical data, and you elucidate pathways insofar as they explain the empirical data. Why do I give an ACE inhibitor and a heart failure? If I ask a student who just came out of the first two years, they'll tell me TGF beta signaling and ventricular remodeling, and I'll tell them no because it improves all-cause mortality in randomized controlled trials. That's why I do it. And what, everything you said is just the latest model for why that's the case, uh, but perhaps that model will be refined. But what is the reason is the mortality benefit. We, we treat medicine, I think, backwards. And we, you know, you read the book. We talk about that for a couple chapters. Sometimes we have pathophys and anecdotal evidence. Uh, we, stented, we, per, we did a vertebroplasty on somebody for back pain. And the first 20 people were all saying, I felt great. So that's pretty convincing. It makes sense and they feel great. Epidemiology evidence like hormone therapy, something called historical controlled evidence where we compare, I treat 50 people with a certain cancer today and 80% are alive in three years, but I know from the textbooks only 30% will be alive at three years because that's what happened at MD Anderson in 1952, therefore my therapy works. Or therefore there have been lots of advances since 1952. The patients are different, the center is different, the drugs are different. How do you know which one it is? Historical controlled studies provide the bulk of evidence in many fields, probably my field of oncology, it's the bulk. And in fact, we have a renewed push towards this. Just yesterday, Friends of Cancer Research and the FDA, they had like a panel discussion where they talk about a synthetic control arm. We're gonna, why do randomized trials? Half the people get placebo. We should have a synthetic control arm based on historical controlled evidence. Of course, we've known that that's been, that's very likely to inflate the benefits over what the reality is. And, and then I joke, why not just have a whole synthetic trial? You don't even have an experimental group. You just synth synthesize the whole thing. Just give me the results from a computer and we know what works. All right. The last thing I'd say is randomized trials. We think randomized trials are like sacrosanct, but simply being a randomized trial doesn't mean you're a good randomized trial. They're bad in very classic ways. Some of those ways have to do with pragmatism. The patients on the trial are too young or not representative of your practice or my practice. The drug's dosing is not right. The comparator is a poor choice. There are prohibitions on concomitant medications, an asthma trial where you can't take drugs that you give all the time for asthma, or it's a single center trial, like type of glycemic control in the Netherlands. Something about that single center 
was unique and drove the outcome, but it couldn't be replicated in a multicenter. So tight glycemic control and early goal-directed therapy, which came out of the Henry Ford Hospital, hospital with Manny Rivers. Those were not replicated in a multicenter. If you have a procedural intervention, a complex like team intervention, you need multi-center, not single center. Because I don't care if it works at OHSU, I care if it's scalable and works wherever you deploy it. Manny Rivers doesn't exist everywhere. He only exists in one hospital in Detroit. Maybe it works with Manny Rivers is breathing down your neck. Maybe it doesn't work if he's not there. You know, that kind of question. There's some other classic ways randomized trials are wrong. Maybe we'll talk about some. Meta-analysis. Meta-analysis is like a juicer. It only tastes as good as what you put in the juicer. We're putting a lot of rotten fruits and vegetables in this juicer. So people say, why are you doing something? Oh, meta-analysis says to do it. But the meta-analysis is a meta-analysis of garbage. So G-I-G-O is what we say. Garbage in, garbage out. Anytime you have a mechanical, procedural, or surgical intervention that only improves the subjective endpoint, like knee pain, uh, like back pain, like lumbar pain or radicular pain or dyspnea, um, the control arm of that intervention has to be the sham intervention. We've seen over and over in our data set that the sham study was able to do what no other study was able to do, which is separate the treatment effect from the, from the intervention, from the suggestion and belief that you had something done. And all these are examples where that was the case. We believed it works, patients do feel better, but it doesn't work better than a sham intervention. Orthopedic surgery, when they subject themselves to sham, they get decimated. And I think if they continue to do more sham trials, they will continue to be decimated. Um, because these subjective endpoints have a huge placebo effect. But it's vitally important that a $10,000 piece of expandable metal actually improves symptoms beyond the suggestion that you put a $10,000 piece of metal, because it's a $10,000 piece of metal that can dissect the coronary artery, frankly. All right. I'll take a brief side, side glance into this. I think many of us who read the news is about epidemiology. And, and why nutritional epidemiology, I've said many times, I think is like a bankrupt field. The whole thing, we'd be better off the whole thing just collapsed on itself and went away because they have like no truth content to anything they say. Um, and like two weeks ago in JMI, I saw like the two worst offenders, these Harvard professors who have like a thousand papers each with like one truthful claim in the entire thousand papers. You know, they built a, like a legacy of garbage and they, and they wrote an article defending their craft. But I think many of us feel like this is what the news is like. They spin a wheel, coffee can cause spin a wheel, depression in spin a wheel, twins. Boom, you got the story of the day. And every day they just spin the wheel again. Um, because that's how it feels like when you read the news. And I'll tell you, this is an older cartoon, but I know what's here now. Um, somebody called them luxury items. If you're wealthy and liberal, the things you do are the things on this wheel. So one, the use of berries. Two, dark chocolate, red wine. Um, alcohol, but it has to be good alcohol. None of this you know, hard liquor stuff, good wine. Wine is what's gonna improve outcomes. Dark chocolate, any unpronounceable berry. If you're a fruit with a pit in it, you're toast. You know, peaches and get that, get the hell out of here, peaches. Nobody wants to read a peach did anything. Put those in the trash can and find a berry that you can't pronounce the name. Now you've got something. Then you look at the, you know, the endpoints are breast cancer, heart disease, you know, things that affect the wealthy. Those are the kinds of stories that you, you see all the time. Here's one. Vitamin E increases all-cause mortality. I read a story like this, and I go to my cupboard, and I throw out dozens of bottles. But then I'm back in Costco because that mortality study is challenged, and I'm buying the biggest bottle ever. Well, but we always see this flip-flopping. Okay. Uh, I'm going to explain in like 
seven minutes, why it flip-flopped and will always flip-flop for like the rest of time. I think this was kind of shown cleverly by Chirag Patel and John Ioannidis and Belinda Buford in a paper in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology. And it's an underappreciated paper that I always tout because I think it's like probably the, one of the best papers of the decade. Here's what they noticed. How do we do all these nutritional studies, you know, all these kind of studies? We tend to use one questionnaire called NHANES, which is the National Household Examination Food Frequency Questionnaire that's paired with mortality outcomes. So we knew what people said they ate or drank for many, many years, and we know if they lived or died or have breast cancer or some other endpoint. And in fact, there are 220 covariates, in the, or maybe more than that, maybe 400, I forget. Off the top. There's like hundreds of covariates, 200 to 400 variables we know about these people, how much tomatoes they ate, how much vitamin E they took in, you know, how much whatever, all these sorts of things. And the data set is free. And lots of us know how to use this statistical software. And lots of us have actually run some of these analyses. So let's simulate what's happening. In Portland, Oregon, I get out my computer, I download NHANES, and I want to know about vitamin E. And I construct a regression model. And all these kinds of studies are some such model. I say, can I predict if people lived or die, my Y variable? What predicts if people lives or dies? Let me build my model. First thing I put in my model is the thing I'm interested in looking, vitamin E. Then I put in the age of the patient, because what if older people use vitamin E preferentially? I want to correct for that, right? It, it'll look like vitamin E is harmful if it's only used by 80-year-olds, but if I adjust for age, perhaps it's beneficial because there's a bias in terms of who's using it. Then I adjust for sex, and I adjust for race. And these are all very plausible things you would adjust for. My friend in Toronto, he has the same data set open. He adjusts for income, because in Canada, they care about income inequality. We don't care about it in this country, but they care about it there. My friend in North Carolina, she adjusts for smoking, because she sees a lot more smoking than I do. My friend at Harvard is very smart. He adjusts for all these things, BMI, hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol, alcohol consumption, blah, 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 because he doesn't like rejections. So that's why he <laughs> adjusts for everything. Um, so this is what they noticed. Many investigators have access to the data set, and many investigators are probing the relationships. And that's more true for hot questions like blueberries and dark chocolate than it is for obscure questions like, I don't know, how much seaweed do you eat or something like that. Each investigator adjusts for some covariance that makes sense to them and makes sense to you because they're all plausible. But what happens if you simulate the entire research community? What if you simulate me and Toronto and Harvard and everyone who's asking the same question? Here's what you get. They basically picked one variable, vitamin D and mortality, and they picked 13 things, the things I showed you that the Harvard researcher adjusts for, age, sex, cholesterol, heart disease, and they adjust for all 13, all 12, and every possible combination less than 13. So this is two to the power of 13 or 8,192 models. So they're basically simulating what 8,192 research investigators would do. Actually, maybe each investigator tests like five or six models. So maybe it's like a few hundred investigators doing a few hundred models. They're simulating the potential, all the ways we could be studying this. And they get these clouds. And on one axis, they plot hazard ratio, the relationship between the two things. And on the other axis, they plot the significance level. So what are they showing you here? This is a heat map. Every dot on the map is a paper that could be in the New York Times. Every dot is a New York Times story could be a New York Times story. The hotter it is, the more dots are at that spot. What hazard ratio, one is null, what hazard ratio is the most common hazard ratio when you look at single nutrients and mortality? One, no relationship. Vitamin D doesn't matter, vitamin E doesn't matter, this doesn't matter, because one surfing here or there probably doesn't matter. 
That's the most common thing. But there are dots in both extremes that are below one, above one, for many things. In fact, I think some, off the top of my head, something like 30% or 40% had the Janus phenomenon. It could go in either directions, like the two-faced Roman god. Um, what does this mean? Who's publishing these articles with null results? Nobody. If I run it on my computer and I get a null result, I'm not even gonna have my postdoc write it up. It's not worth her time to write it up. She's gonna get a lousy paper, if they accept it at all. There's a null result between blueberries and survival, yawn. That's not a New York Times story. But if I'm that lunatic in Cornell who just resigned and he told people to get me significant results, um, that person's gonna get what they want because you can pick some covariates that'll get you that. And somebody who hates blueberries will get what they want, okay? So you can kind of get anything you want out of this data set. There's more variability in the noise in how we analyze it than there is truth in the signal. And there's a nice paper by Ben Nozick where he gave the same data set of like referees who gave red cards to soccer players. And it had some, it told you the soccer player's skin color. And they asked, are darker colored players more likely to get red cards than lighter colored players? Which is a very provocative claim. And they gave it to like 30 research groups and said, here's the data set, here's the question, you tell us what you found. Group number one, uh, no, they're less likely to get it, but it's non-significant. Group number two, uh, no difference. Three, no difference, no difference, no difference. It matters, 1.1% odds ratio. It matters, 1.5%, 1.5 odds ratio, 1.7, 2, 3. They gave you whatever answer you wanted. They're different answers, and the same data set, same investiga or different investigators. This is a slightly different question. I think what they're showing you here is that when you have a retrospective data set, you have something called multiplicity. The hypothesis can be tested many, many times. And all of the filters between the newspaper and the people who are testing the hypothesis favor sensational results. So we will always get flip-flopping of these things. And he has called nutritional science nothing more than an opinion poll or a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because you can get whatever you want. And what you get out the back end reflects what our opinion is. So bacon is always going to do bad because we think bacon is bad. Blueberries are going to do good because we think blueberries are good. And, but are blueberries good and is bacon really bad? You know, maybe. But like, if so, probably very, very modest. Probably it's okay to have a little. I don't want to tell anybody that. No, but I mean, it's probably like not the biggest deal in the world. Like most things, most nutritional exposures probably <laughs> don't matter a great deal. Probably just don't eat too much is like the only takeaway lesson one should think if you look at all this data. Um, all right, we could talk about that. We have like 10 minutes left. 15. Okay, let's talk about that. Entresto. I hate this drug. Uh, this is Sacubitril Valsartan, and it's like widely promoted for heart failure. And you are probably under pressure to pr use it. And you will be under more pressure because the New England Journal published that paper that says for hospitalized patients, it'll lower the BNP more than in Allopril. Uh, I, I've always, like, every time I look at this trial, it, like, baffles me that people think this is acceptable in any way. We take a novel drug. This drug inhibits neprilysin. There is no neprilysin inhibitor on the U.S. market. We had an old one many years ago that was a neprilysin and ACE inhibitor, omeprilot, I think, and it actually failed to come to U.S. market. So this is a failed class of medication that had a lot of angioedema. And it's paired with, paired with Valsartan because you cannot pair this drug with an ACE because of angioedema. You gotta pair, pair with an ARB. And they pair it with an ARB, and they give the ARB, it's 160 milligrams BID. Has anyone ever put a patient on Valsartan 160 BID? I've never had a patient that high. I think they'd pass out in my office. They tested against enalapril 10 milligrams BID. How many of you even use enalapril? 
It's a BID ACE inhibitor. It's terrible. And 10 BID is half the maximal dose. This is max FDA dose. This is half maximum dose. Okay? This is the comparison they're running. This is one arm of the study. This is the other. So every time I present this to like medical students, they say, why wasn't this just Valsartan 160 BID? And that's what I say, because that's a clean trial that asks whether or not some novel chemical compound is good or bad, which is the question. But this is the design they had, and I suspect it would favor this drug, because this drug has more RAS axis inhibition than this drug. Okay, even if this drug was sugar or pixie stick. But they go further. They, 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 they further make the trial unrepresentative. They take 10,000 people, they put all of them on enalapril for 15 days. And in those 15 days, 1,100 fall off the study. 10% of people, poof, off the study. They can't tolerate the drug, they, uh, or they, for other reasons they don't want to be on the study, boom, they're off. Then they take everyone and put them on that combo pill, Secubitril Valsartan, but they do half this dose for 15 days, and then they crank it up to the full dose for the next 15 days, so 29 days on the combo drug. Another 1,000 people fall off the study. So we get 20% attrition before we get to randomization. Now we're randomizing you. But what are you being randomized to? To stay on Valsartan and the new drug, or go back to an Alipril, which you haven't taken in the last month? So this tests a different question, whether it is better to stay on Entresto or switch to an Alipril after exposure to both agents for unequal periods of time. That's the question it's tested in Paradigm HF. And Milt Packer says the p-value of this trial that shows this is better than this has a lot of zeros in it, and that's true. So he says it's the equivalent of four studies, but he doesn't understand why you do more than one study. You don't do more than one in study just to get a lower p-value. You do more than one study to prove that this drug is better in different variations of the study. It, yes, this drug is better than an allopril, but in a different study, you test, is this drug with Valsartan better than Valsartan? That starts to lend credence to hypothesis. It really has to do with this drug and not this particular trial design with a double drug run-in with unequal periods. It's not about the p-value, it's about the other elements of the trial design. I guess all I want to say about this is that, um, you know, the media is like, uh, I could t talk a lot about it, but we did a study a few years ago where we said, the media can pick whatever article they want to cover in the news. What do they pick? And it turns out if you look at top journals over a period of time, 40% of the articles are randomized and 50% are observational studies, but the media is covering 17% randomized trials and 70% observational studies. And they tend to cover observational studies that are smaller in sample size. In other words, the media go to the journals and they dive down the hierarchy of medical evidence to pull out those blueberry papers and not cover like actual transformational research. And what do I think the solutions are? I guess I hope to have painted the picture in this talk that I think one of the problems we're dealing with now is that uh, over-enthusiastic and financial interests have every incentive to push products out into the marketplace with ever lower efficacy standards on the outside. Once upon a time, Paradigm HF wouldn't have led to drug approval. They would have re the FDA used to require two confirmatory trials for heart disease. That, re that requirement has been relaxed, likely under the pressure of heavy lobbying. Um, there was a lot of rationale to blockbuster drugs having two trials, not one. Maybe not cancer drugs, but certainly blockbuster drugs. Uh, so we have a regulatory system that's doing, a, I think, a worse and worse job. We have this huge push to get things through. Uh, that makes our jobs much, much harder. I think our jobs are no longer as easy as they were, that you can trust the FDA. You can't trust your CME activities, for half of these CME activities are literally you know, a copy and paste job of the industry press release. Um, 
I think we all have to kind of be stewards of our own practice and think a lot more about about these interventions and whether or not they're actually worth deploying on a case-by-case -case basis. I think new costly technologies are ideal for testing in randomized trials at the outset. Ideally, like well done randomized trials. There's so many things we do on a day-to-day -day basis that we don't know if they actually work or not. They're unproven. If you think about your day and you actually like wrote down everything you did the way an anthropologist would, because you don't even see half the things you do anymore. They, you know, like driving your car when you're thinking about something. You forget how you get there, you know? They fall within the backdrop of your day. You come to work and you replete everyone's potassium, magnesium, all these things. Uh, you don't think that that's a medical intervention. Do I really need to replete the mag in somebody with like no, no structural heart disease? K is like 3.7, do I need to give them K? You know, you start to ask yourself these questions. You'll paralyze yourself if you ask yourself a question for everything. We have to, you know, do things the way we were taught. But at the same time, Somebody should set up some large non-conflicted trials agenda, prioritize things by their cost, their potential harms, and start to conduct some very simple pragmatic trials. Sort these things out. We spend $1 trillion a year on healthcare at the federal level. We spend a total of like $35 billion on medical research, including federally funded randomized trials. That's a ridiculous ratio. If you had a company and you had them spend a trillion dollars on something, maybe 300 to 500 million of which they have no idea if it improves their bottom line. The first thing any you know, consultant would say is, we need to assess 400 million of our spending and sort this out because if we can save a dollar here, boom, we, you know, it's very valuable. My friend Peter Doshi said um, about data sharing, companies say it's so costly to share data for our clinical trials for other researchers. And he did this study on Tamiflu, which basically shows Tamiflu is like a glorified Tylenol. Uh, he says one Tamiflu would have saved global stockpiles $20 billion. One Tamiflu pays for data sharing for 50 years. You know, so you talk about how expensive it is to data share. How expensive is it to not have data sharing and pay for Tamiflu when it's really a very marginal product? And I think that's, the, that's something that has to happen at a political level. Design and conduct of trials should move to third party. I think eventually we will realize that this is the only solution. Uh, prior to 1906, there was no FDA at all in this country. Then this guy Upton Sinclair wrote a book about meatpacking industry, and he writes, I aimed for their heart and hit them in the stomach. Because people, he thought it was a book about unfettered capitalism, but it was a book about how nasty the meat was and how you, if you swept your hand over the meat, all you would have a handful of rat droppings. You know, that's the kind of book that was published. You know, and that was the state of meatpacking, and that's why TR went after the meatpacking industry. And that's why we had the FDA. But in the initial stage of the FDA, we only had a requirement for safety, not efficacy. It wasn't until 1962, Kiefer Harris and the thalidomide fiasco that we added in the efficacy requirement. Now we're another 50, 60 years in the future. What do we need now? We need comparative effectiveness. Why do we have 50 PD-1 drugs coming to the market, all being tested against placebo or control arm, not a single trial testing them against each other? It's unacceptable. We need this regulatory authority to say, you have to test your pre-market products against each other. That needs, you know, politics to pass it. We have a system where you go to the FDA with $2.6 million and the results of your clinical trial. You say, here, can I get this approved? I think that's irrational. That allows a company to put Secubitril Valsartan against Enalapril to do a double drug run-in period, this bizarre trial design that I didn't tell you, but we studied it. It's like the only example of that trial design ever leading to regulatory approval across 141 trials led to FDA approval we published a paper on. It's a very unusual trial design, to say the least. What should the world look like? You go to the FDA, your company, here's my chemical compound, here's my preclinical data, and here's $26 million. The user fee, 
but you design and conduct and run the study. And the moment the DSMB calls you on the phone and says it's positive, you approve the drug. If anything, it could save time. And they can have the same sort of requirements for how fast the FDA, FDA has to do it. And the FDA can say, we're only gonna take non-conflicted investigators to design and conduct the trial. So we'll, they'll decide what control arm, what's the population, where should the trial be conducted, which CRO should run it. That's the only rational way to do this because the current system puts so much incentive for companies to get favorable results. If you incentivize somebody to the tune of $10 billion for a positive trial and $0 for a negative trial and you ask them to design the best trial, they cannot do that and it's only human nature. I mean, if I were running the company, I would come up with every concocted way to get my trial to work too. It's like having a painting contest where I submit a painting and I'm the judge and the prize is $10 billion, I'm gonna win. And I'm a lousy painter, very lousy, but I'm gonna win that. People always say randomized trials are very, very expensive. And this is where I think Silicon Valley, uh, I think they're totally useless people down there because uh, I mean, I was reading something like they have some test where you, they can look in your eye and tell you what your blood pressure is. This is something technology they're developing. I was like, you know, there's another, there's another non-invasive way to tell you your blood pressure, it's called a cuff. Okay, so what are you solving? Meanwhile, their EMRs are garbage. Make, a good e make an EMR that isn't total garbage. That's, that's like the first thing you should do. Until you check off that box, I don't wanna hear about your wearables and your, your whatever. Make the EMR that's not garbage. Second thing to do, make a randomized trial that doesn't cost $30,000 per participant. Why does it cost $30,000 to do a simple randomized trial? This is a trial called TASTE that came out of the Netherlands. The blue line shows everyone in the Netherlands who had stenting for STEMI. Everybody. And the red line shows everybody they randomized. In our country, we're 3% of people being randomized out of all the people. They got like 60%. And they're running this randomized trial of aspirating the thrombus or not for $50 per person. We do it for 20 to 30K. How do they do this? They built an efficient system where there's a single point randomization in the workflow for the doctors. Say, okay, you wanna be randomized for this or not? Boom, decide, boom, you go on the study or not. We should be doing this for like dozens of questions in our day. It should be very simple, built into the workflow and answer very simple questions. Probably a single hospitalist practice that's very, 50, 100 people could answer dozens of important questions a year. Or not even important questions, questions that we all live our whole careers wondering about. Um, somebody once joked to me that they could probably answer a few questions if they secretly flipped a coin, you know? But of course, they would never be allowed to, and it's not endorsed. We don't endorse that. No, you don't, yeah, there's a lot of IRBs that you need to go through which are necessary, but at the same point, the real, the real single transformational technology in all of biomedicine was developed in the 1940s, and it's called randomization. It's the single most useful technology. It's the single best thing we've ever done, because what does it do? Throughout all of human history, we practice medicine based on anecdote, what experts thought was best, and hearsay, and we probably did net harm on average for thousands of years. We probably are finally in a moment where much of what we do has a net benefit, and the benefit is modest to marginal effect sizes for biomedicine. We have very few parachutes, almost none, and most of our things have modest to marginal effect sizes. That's not bad, that's pretty good. I'll take, I'll, I'd, I'd love to practice modest effect size my whole career, that's good. But the problem with modest effect size is your desire to believe it works, your bias, your human nature, can obscure you to noise versus signal. And the only way to separate those two is prospective randomization. That's the best way to separate the two. 
It allows you to separate things you believe are merely plausible from things that actually do work modestly. And if we did that for everything, we could improve outcomes much more than any sort of revolutionary technology that will come, or probably won't come, but will be hyped a great deal. Okay, so my final thought is that I think history has taught us the arc of medicine. It bends towards higher standards of evidence, despite the many limits. Um, you know, we do more trials than we've ever done at any point in history. We have more randomized trials, more meta-analyses. We need more of them to tell us information that affects our practices. Patients need to look like our actual patients. Trials need to be run more by non-conflicted groups. We need regulators who actually want to raise, not perpetually lower the bar. The client of regulators is the American people. It's not the industry. And I think we see regulatory capture in the sense that the regulators have confused the two. And I think many of these solutions, I mean, if, if you ask, like, what could you do in your day-to-day -day practice, I think, you know, be critical. Don't just do something because it's new. Figure out a way that you can always stay abreast of the literature. I think I, I wrote a column for Medscape recently where I, I give you a suggestion of how you could do that. Um, you know, but I think you have to do that. And then, and then when the moment comes and somebody asks, like, should we have some reforms here, which I think will happen in, the, in our lifetime, you know, to be an advocate for that reform. So that's really all I have. I think if you like this talk, you should check out the book. I appreciate that you actually took a look at it. And the podcast, we ran this podcast plenary session where we talk a lot about this. So thanks for having me. Oh, why do I think that? I think that um, I think that like every time there's been regulatory reform, it's like it's it's it, it happens the way a pendulum happened. You know, there will be a pendulum swing. So we've had I think a brisk and steady deregulatory attitude since the early 1990s in terms of Food and Drug Administration, and part of that was out of necessity through the HIV/AIDS epidemic, and. People also, I think, have done some revisionist history there. They forget about like DDI and some failed drugs, but certainly there were some transformational FDA drugs around that time. And now we've seen more and more that the FDA, I think, serves the industry, especially with the newest commissioner. And I think people are increasingly aware of some of these problems, bad trials, and there will be a moment where you'll get all three branches of government controlled by people who actually want to fix this problem. And in that moment, there'll be an opportunity for very strong legislation, and I think I think a lot of people think about how they can slow the slow decline of regulatory state. I think I know a lot of my colleagues who do health policy think about that. But I think about that moment where you have a window to pass something of true reform and hit two issues the American people care a great deal about, cost, because this is tied to cost. I guess, why is it tied to cost? Mm, because uh, Medicare has to pay for any drug that's approved for cancer, period. It doesn't matter if it works well or if it's garbage. They cannot negotiate the price. They have to pay for any drug that's recommended for cancer by an expert body where 85% of the doctors have a conflict with the industry and they recommend these drugs willy-nilly because we did that and we have a paper in the BMJ showing they recommend it widely. And they have no choice. And if you have no choice for the payer, the only choice <laughs> is the regulator. And the regulator is lowering the bar ever more and approving more and more drugs. And the industry has no limit to what they can charge. It could charge a million dollars a pill and Medicare will have to pay. And the only way I think to control the interlocking problems of low regulatory standards and cost I think the best way is to raise regulatory standards. It's a little counterintuitive, but if you raise regulatory standards, in the short run, you will slow a lot of drugs that come to market. But it won't be good drugs you slow. You'll slow useless drugs or near useless drugs. Then what will happen is the industry will retool the entire R&D. You have R&D in industry now where they're doing 1,000 clinical trials of combining drugs with immunotherapy. 1,500 ongoing clinical trials of that. 
you would not run that trials agenda if the FDA had very high bars. They're running trials of drugs that have like no activity in cancer in large portfolios. They know they do that because even we published a paper saying even a few false positives will pay for the whole portfolio. So I think when somebody like act, I don't know, I think the, the cost of drugs will keep going up. Every reform that's been proposed so far is not going to put a dent in it. People are going to get more and more angry about it. And there'll one day be a moment where you could pass something good. And that's what you should wait for and think about. And that's when I'd pass non-conflicted group conducting the clinical trials. That'll change the whole system. And then I think there'll be some, you know, that's why I'm optimistic. It doesn't have to happen. All you need is one moment for that. And once it happens, it won't be able to be reversed. Like Affordable Care Act, I think, public sentiment will see the virtue of it very quickly. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>